Well, yeah, hey, congratulations to Zach and Lizzie. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Also thankful for him and thankful for our uh, staff and volunteers who did the uh, refurb of our lobby out there. They did a great job, and everybody's been telling me what a great job I did. Yeah, it was all me. No, it was all them. So very grateful for that team who uh, put that together. Let me take a moment to kind of uh, reintroduce myself in case you are wondering uh, who I am. I really am the senior pastor of Hutto Bible Church and the primary preacher here, though I have been out of the pulpit for the last few weeks. Thankful for pastors Michael, uh, James, and Trey for doing such a great job bringing the word. It came like it really hit me last week when I was doing the newcomers uh, luncheon that everybody who was there, like who, who was newer to our church, not the people who served food, but all the new people, and there was a great crowd, had been to this church for the last like four or five weeks, and they had never heard me preach, <laughs> right? And they had heard these great guys preach, and then they're stuck with me afterwards. And uh, of course, you know, then when I do get up to preach, it's on this topic, Right? And so let's just talk about the elephant in the room, the little book you have in your hand, and those two, like, dreaded words. Stewardship campaign. Like, you might be thinking right now, uh, oh man, I was really starting to like this church. Like, I really like how things went. That Trey guy is so great. He's got so much energy. Like, Michael and... James are just so warm and like stewardship campaign. Like, is it too late to make it to a service at First Baptist? And uh, if you're thinking that, I'm sorry. In fact, uh, let me just ask you, and this is, of course, a rhetorical question. Don't answer out loud or it'll be awkward. But um, what negative thoughts come into your mind when you hear those two words? When you hear stewardship campaign or building campaign? I mean, think about it for a moment. Can I just guarantee you that I share at least a few of those negative thoughts with you? Like, for me, like at least sometimes, those negative thoughts come from how past stewardship campaigns have been handled. And maybe that's you too. I mean, beyond the flashbacks to giant thermometers, right, telling you how much money they need to raise... It stirs up for many people memories of emotional and spiritual manipulation. Like give, give, give. God wants you to give this amount, right? Give and you will get. If you give, God will bless you tenfold. You'll write the check and it'll be added to your account next week. Maybe you've experienced that. And if that's the case for you, guys, I'm really sorry that that was your experience. And I want you to know, like I've experienced a little bit of that too, but you will not experience that in this series. Like this is not about twisting arms and manipulation. Like I'm not going to try to tug simply at your heartstrings and, you know, give you a number or promise a blessing. I'm not going to do any of those things. However, I won't promise that it will be painless. Because I got to tell you, for me personally, 
some of my negative memories and experiences come from how it was mishandled. But if I'm completely honest with you, I think most of my negative experiences in past stewardship campaigns were the result of having to go to battle against my own fears and against my own idols of greed and envy and comfort. And so I want you to know at the beginning, if you're new here to our church, this is a series that is specific to those who call Hutto Bible Church their home. And so if you are a follower of Christ and this is your home church, this series is for you. Now we would encourage anybody, no matter how long they've been here, to go through this process that we're going to lay out. And so uh, whether you've been here for six weeks or six years, we want you to go through the process. So what is the process? What exactly are we asking of people? Well, on your outlines, you can write this in and you have these great little books that have a little pocket in them where you can even slide your notes in. And so we want everybody to have a book and have their outlines. But on your outline, write this. This series and the 28 days of prayer are all about aligning our hearts with the heart of God. I mean, honestly, can I just tell you, That is what this series is about. It is honestly about aligning our hearts with the heart of God. It is not about a final number or percentage of pledges or a dollar amount that is committed, but it is about commitment. And we would love 100% of people in our church who call this their home to be committed to go through a process of prayer. Like, will you commit using the prayer guide, like 28 days of guided prayer in the Scripture, in your book, will you commit using the prayer guide to pray for the next 28 days to seek the heart of God regarding your role in all of this that we're doing as a church? Like, will you commit to do that? Like, will you commit to do a thorough evaluation of each message that you hear from the pulpit? Like, will you commit to do an honest evaluation of your own heart? And will you commit to do a thoughtful evaluation of your own resources? And will you commit to give as God leads you to give? Not as the pastor leads you to give, but through your process of prayer, Will you commit to give as God leads you to give? In your prayer guide, the second page in the prayer guide, there's a place for you to sign. Fill out your information and we're going to ask you to turn in just that as a commitment that you're committed to prayer. Uh, You've seen some people, they've already turned them in up here at the different communion stations. That's what we're asking because we really believe that if we can get our entire church to simply go through the prayer process, regardless of the amount we are given or pledged as a church, if we can just commit, get everyone to commit to go through the prayer process, it will be a victory. I mean, think about it. If we would all commit to seek the heart of God together and follow His lead, this won't be a building campaign. It won't be a stewardship campaign. It'll be a gospel campaign. 
It'll be a life change campaign. God will use this time of 28 days of prayer to break an addiction to sin in some of your lives. To repair like damage you've done in your relationship with your kids and in your marriage as you pray together. Like God will use this to root out strongholds of the enemy in your life. And so will you commit to pray with us and seek the heart of God for 28 days? We want to, we want to steer our lives and we want to steer our values and our resources and our treasures in the direction of God's heart, which leads to a really important question. What is nearest to the heart of God? Like when we talk about the heart of God, what that presupposes is that you understand that God is a personal being. Like that God loves things and God hates things. Like that God has passion for things. Like what matters to God? What is God passionate about? And is there a way that we can know the heart of God? Is there a way that I can personally discover the heart of God? Well, there is. And first way you do that is the Word of God tells the story of the heart of God. The Word of God tells the story of the heart of God. Like the Bible that you have in your lap or on your tablet or on your phone, the Bible is God's Word. It's God's story. It's the story of His heart. It's the story that He planned before any of it came to be. I mean, it's not simply a record of events. The Bible is a promise from God, look what I'm going to do. And so as you read the Bible, you don't have to guess about the heart of God. He has revealed His heart and His plan on every page. And if you call this church your home, and if you've been here for a while, you know that my life verse is Habakkuk 2.14. In Habakkuk 2.14, God says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Like the reason that's my life verse is because years ago, when I was a junior in college, I took a class called Progress of Redemption. And in the first class, the professor got up. It was an overview of the whole Bible. And he says, do you want to understand the whole Bible? Like, do you want to be able to read Leviticus and get it? Like, understand what God is doing. Jump forward to 2 Kings and get it and understand where God is moving His story. Do you want to get into the Gospels and see how they connect with the Old Testament and get into the book of Revelation and see how it makes sense with the book of Genesis? This is what you need to understand. God has a purpose. Like, God has purpose that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is God's purpose statement. So if you're reading through God's Word and you get stuck and you wonder what's going on here, Habakkuk 2.14 should be your compass. It should be your GPS. Like it will show you the direction that God is moving history so that you can follow Him and go where He goes. And it's interesting, like to me, 
and very telling that throughout the biblical narrative, both Old and New Testament, whenever God's people are facing a very challenging moment, God chooses that moment to remind them of who He is and what He plans to do. In fact, He does it right here in Habakkuk. Like if you know the book of Habakkuk, you know that the prophet is in the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom has already fallen and he is looking at the wickedness of God's people, of the chosen people of God, and he says, God, how long? Like how long are you going to put up with this mess? Like look at these people. Like they're stealing, they're embezzling, they're immoral. They dishonor you. God, step up and do something. How long, oh Lord, can you put up with this wickedness? And then God speaks. And He says, oh, buddy, I'm about to do something that if I didn't tell you in advance, you would not believe it. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians and they're going to sweep across the land and destroy your kingdom and take you captive. To which Habakkuk replies, uh, what? Like, uh, no, what I meant was, like, kill some of these bad Israelites. Like, just, like, thin the herd. Like, how can you send in the Babylonians? God, you're too pure to look upon evil. These people are wicked. How can you sweep the righteous away with the sinners? And God replies and shuts the mouth of Habakkuk by saying, I'll show you what I'm going to do and I'll show you what I'm doing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is coming a day when everyone who looks at what I have made will connect the dots to the Creator. Like everybody will see a sunset. They'll see the stars in the sky. They'll see the hand of a child and know that I made that and give me all the glory. That's what I'm doing. So that in every place throughout the nations, people will know the name Yahweh. The breather of life. The giver of all things. They will know Me. That's what I'm doing among the nations. That's what I'm doing to fill the earth with a clear knowledge of My glory. And this is just a step in that plan. Like I said, I think it's very telling that throughout the biblical narrative, there are a number of times when God's people are in trouble are facing hardship that God pauses and says, look who I am and look what I'm doing. Like He does it in Genesis 26 with Isaac who in the midst of a hard time is reminded by God, hey, you know that promise I made to your dad? It's for you as well. Like you think it's hard now, you just don't understand. Your heritage that you will have, your generation the children that come after you, the children of My promise, will outnumber the stars of the sky. He does it again at the end of the Old Testament where the people of Israel are sitting back in their land but no longer a kingdom. Like they're under the control of nation after nation after nation. They have a temple, but they don't have a king. And in Malachi reminds them, God reminds Malachi in chapter 1 of that book, 
I am a great king. I am, I am your king. And I will be honored among the nations. In fact, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same in every place, my name will be honored among the nations and incense will be offered to me and pure offering for I am a great king. God does it again in the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, right before the Lamb breaks the first scroll and kind of floods the earth with God's judgment before everything like happens, like before history unfolds. They pause. They look at the Lamb who was slain and they sing His victory song. Because they know, like I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know where this is all heading. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Why does God do this? You see, God gives us a compass so that we can steer our lives by it. He gives us a compass so we can steer our lives in the direction of His heart. I love how Paul Tripp puts it. He says, we all need something glorious and transcendent to capture and motivate our hearts. We all need to be rescued from ourselves by being spiritually awakened to something bigger than us. Like, do you know it? Like, do you feel it? Scratching at your heart? Like, scratching at your memory? Telling you there's more than this? Like, we need something transcendent, glorious. Do you have that? Like, what are you steering your lives by? Where is the direction of your heart and your life and your resources and your time and efforts going? Because God gives you one. He says, here it is. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You can bank on that. Have you ever gone to the ocean and said, where's all the water? Of course not. Unless you were in Tampa Bay a few weeks ago, right? Like the, the ocean is full. And it's terrifying. Like there's coming a day when God's knowledge, the knowledge of His goodness, His grace, and His glory will fill the nations and we get to be a part of that. Understand that that's going to happen. That's our safe harbor. That's where we should steer our lives. See, above everything, God is committed to His own glory. In fact, God, guys, is the most God-centered person being in the entire universe. Which may sound weird to you because you might think, okay, if, if Bobby is Bobby-centered, that's bad. That's being self-centered. Is that bad for God? Well, Bobby's not God. <laughs> like for God to be centered on anything but His own glory would be to center His attention, His energy, His adoration on something less than Him. To be ultimately committed to that which is not ultimate is the definition of idolatry. And God is not an idolater. God is committed to His own glory. Like we read in Isaiah 53, it tells us that God 
created us for His glory. In Ephesians 1, we read that God chose us for Himself for the praise of His glorious grace. In Isaiah 48, which I think may be the most God-saturated passage in all the Bible, it tells us that God keeps His covenant to His people even though we're sinners for the sake of His own glory. Isaiah records the words of God, For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. For my own name's sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. To be ultimately committed to that which is not ultimate is idolatry. And the Word of God tells the story of the heart of God. Guys, in every chapter you read in the Bible, in every one of the acts of Scripture, the four acts of Scripture from creation when everything was perfect to the fall of man into sin, to redemption provided on the cross, and to His restoration of all things, the Bible is the story of God's glory. It's the story of His heart. It's the story of Him filling the earth with the knowledge of His glory. The Word of God tells the story of the heart of God. Next, the Son of God fully embodies the heart of God. Have you ever wondered what God is really like? in character, in personality. Like if He was here right now, how would He be? You see, the incarnation, God becoming flesh, was for the display of God's glory. Like if you want to see with your own eyes the heart of God, just look at Jesus. What He said. What He taught. How He gave His life for us. In 1 John chapter 1, John, the disciple and best friend of Jesus, writing about 50 or 60 years after the death and resurrection, writes these words. He says, We proclaim to you the One who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw Him with our own eyes and touched Him with our own hands. He is the Word of life. This One who was life itself was revealed to us and we have seen Him. Writing 50 or 60 years later, you can still feel the excitement in John's words. Like He was right there. Like life itself, the embodiment of life stood before me. And I touched Him. I saw Him. My hands handled the Word of life. Like life existent, the very like embodiment of life. I saw Him, John the only one, at the cross with Mary and the other female disciples. He was there and He saw the author of life die. And He writes about it 60 years later. He's still stunned that He got to be there. He writes in John's Gospel, chapter 1, that the Word, the eternal God, the Word 
became flesh and dwelt among us. The message puts it this way. God put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And so when you see Jesus, you see the glory of God. And where do you see the glory of God most clearly? In the life of Jesus? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 17 that the answer to that question is in His cross. In His sacrificial death on the cross. In fact, Jesus prays in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Throughout the Gospels, you read that His hour has not yet come. When people try to drag Him away or try to proclaim that He is the King or the Messiah, He says, My hour has not yet come. In John 17, He says, My hour has come. What's He talking about? He says, Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. He's talking about the cross. Jesus endured the cross to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Understand the cross even more than that mount of transfiguration where Jesus stood there with Elijah and Moses glorified. The cross, even more than that event, put the glory of God on full display. If you want to see the glory of God in all of its splendor, look at the cross of Christ. See a man stretched there with nails through hands and feet bearing the sins of the nations. In fact, this is what the Hebrew Scriptures had foretold all along. Like after the resurrection, Jesus speaking to a couple of His disciples on the path to Emmaus says to them, this is what I told you. While I was still with you, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's just shorthand for the whole Old Testament. And then He opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. Well, understand what about the Scriptures? That all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points to Him and creates a hunger and a longing in the heart of Israel for their Messiah. Like the promise of Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus! The promise of Genesis 22 that through your offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was because of Jesus. The promise of Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up a prophet like Moses and you would do well to listen to him. That's Jesus. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of Jesse. He's the son of man promised in the book of Daniel. The promise of Isaiah 9 that a people walking in darkness would see a great light. That great light is Jesus. And the promise of Isaiah 53 
that there would come a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief and he would bear the sins of many. That's Jesus. And then he told them, Luke 24, 46, this is what is written. Here's the big idea of the whole Old Testament Scriptures. This is the point of everything. This is the nearest thing to the heart of God. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Guys, Jesus is too glorious to be kept a secret. He's too amazing to remain a mystery. There was a recent survey of 25,000 teenagers in 26 different countries and they asked them, what do you think of Jesus? And overwhelmingly, teenagers in those 26 countries had a very favorable view of Jesus. Now, they didn't know who He was. They just knew He was something and it must be good. Like it's our responsibility as the church of Christ to get rid of the mystery and explain that He is fully God. Fully man. He's the maker of all things and the bearer of all sins. He is the Messiah. And He is their Savior. He's too great to be kept secret. The Son of God fully embodies the heart of God. So where do we fit in with all this? Quickly on your outline, the Spirit of God inclines our hearts to the heart of God. In 1 Kings, Solomon prays that God would move in the people of Israel in such a way that He would incline their hearts to Him so that they would walk in His ways and keep His commandments, which was a tall order because they never did that. So how would God answer that prayer? How could He possibly do that? Well, He tells us in Ezekiel 36, He says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey all of My rules. Church, have you experienced that? Like, do you find in your heart like something just turns one day and you find yourself doing things that please God not simply out of habit or out of fear or because mama told you to or your wife is looking over your shoulder? but you find yourself doing things to please God because they please you. Because He's your Father. And because you love Him. Where does that come from? The Spirit of God inclines our hearts to the heart of God. I remember as a young Christian reading in the Psalms, I delight to do Your will, O Lord. Your Word is within my heart. And thinking, I feel that way. Like, where did that come from? Guys, that's what the Spirit of God does when He enters our life. He inclines our heart to the heart of God. And our response to that is that the children of God steer their lives by the heart of God. The children of God steer their lives by the heart of God. One author, 
James K.A. Smith puts it this way, if the heart is like a compass, a homing device, then we need to regularly calibrate our hearts, tuning them to be directed to the Creator, our magnetic north. The children of God steer their hearts by the heart of God. Like What matters to God should matter to us. What God is passionate about, we should be passionate about. And here's what God is passionate about. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so Jesus, we read in Ephesians 5, to make that possible, we read that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing and water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what God loves. It's what God is passionate about. It's what His Son gave His life for. And so our response to the heart of God should simply be faithfulness. Like, what does faithfulness look like? Well, faithfulness is simply aligning my values with what is truly valuable. It's making sure that my values match what is really valuable. It's aligning my heart with the heart of God in every decision, in every opportunity, in every relationship, in every arena in my life, lining my heart up with the heart of God, lining my values up with what is truly valuable. Like I want us to see this series until everyone knows as an opportunity to align our values with what is truly valuable, to align our hearts with the heart of God. Can I just tell you what's been on my heart for the last eight months? <laughs> like as I thought about this. Because you're just hearing it, but you know the elders and the pastors and staff have been thinking about this, praying about this, wrestling over this, planning for this for years, you know. And you saw the, you know, the pictures out there, and you saw the new home for ministry that we want to build. I mean, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful facility. If you've been on our facility team, what's really beautiful about it is nothing's broken yet, right? <laughs> Like we're repairing things left and right in this old building that used to be the firehouse and then was a Mexican restaurant. I mean, it's beautiful. It's clearly a house of worship. You would not see this just south of the ninth grade center and think that we're an annex of the Hutto school system. Right? This is clearly a house of worship. And it's large. It provides a lot of room for growth. It has a great location that God has provided. Like will give us an opportunity to reach the 3,500 new homes that are going in right there. But can I just tell you, over the last few months, what God has been placing on my heart is Psalm 102, verse 18, which says, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. God tells the psalmist, hey, write this down because you're going to be dead soon. I mean, that's what he's telling them. Write this down, because you're not going to be one. Of, you're not going to be here, and I don't want anyone to forget the greatness of God. 
Write this down for a generation that is yet to be born so that they too will praise the Lord. And so I've been thinking about this building and thinking that you know if the Lord wills and we build this thing, our children and our grandchildren will have the Word of God taught to them here. Our children and our grandchildren will be discipled right here. That ninth grade center that's just a few hundred yards away from us will be reached from here. Our daughters and our granddaughters will be married in this building. Our neighbors and generations yet to be born will hear the Gospel for the very first time in the doors of this building. Lives will be changed. Disciples will be formed right here. Missionaries will be sent out and funded from here. Pastors will be ordained. Church plants will be sent out from here. Jesus will be exalted. And Hutto will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord from here. And so what decisions can we make right here and right now that will be a blessing to those who come after us? Now I want you to see until everyone knows as an opportunity to align your heart with the heart of God. If you just go through the process, then God will be honored and you will be blessed. If you just go through the process, God will help you understand how to put your treasure where His heart is. Because that's really what this is about. Like you hear people say that they're super passionate about fill in the blank, Texas A&M. Right? But how much money outside of your kid's tuition are you giving the Texas A&M, right? I mean, you're super committed, you know, unless they're doing really poorly, then you're not that committed, Right? Put your money where your mouth is. Give some money. Build a stadium. Do whatever. Guys, I'm calling all of us, me included, to put our money, to put our treasure, to put our time, to put our, our, our resources, to put our energy, our prayer, our passion toward where God's heart is. So will you commit to pray for the next 28 days to seek the heart of God regarding your role in all of this? If you will, then I'd ask you in your little prayer guide here, on the second page, there's a, a commitment of what you're committing to. I would ask that you sign that, you fill it out, and it's perforated so you can pull it off. And then in a moment, when we have communion, you already see a bunch of them up here. I would ask that you bring those and just leave them. This isn't like something we're going to haunt you with and say, hey, you committed, pay up. That's not what we're going to do. Genuinely, this is your commitment, your stake in the ground, that beginning today, you're going to start praying. And when we see the names on this, we're going to start praying for you by name. And I'm going to start praying for me. That God would speak to me, that He would use His Word to loosen my grip from this world and grab hold of the kingdom. Guys, let's do something really radical today. Let's pursue the heart of God together. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, I don't want to twist arms. I don't want to manipulate. 
Lord, I don't want to, through this process of prayer and sermons and small groups and this booklet, I don't want to do and see what I can accomplish. Lord, I want to see what You will do through simply a church family praying together and seeking Your heart. What You will do in my heart, what You will do in the hearts of our people, so that You would receive all the honor and glory. That there would never be an elder or a pastor, a staff member, a giver whose name receives the fame for any of this, but that all the glory, honor, and praise would go to Your name alone. Lord, You are the provider of all things, and so we just come to You and trust You and ask You to work in us and show us Your heart and align our hearts with Yours. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand with me. And I would ask in a moment as the band plays to come and take your elements of communion and also leave your prayer commitment up here. This table <laughs> represents the heart of God. Like this is what through Christ He has done for us so that we might know Him. He gave His body and He shed His blood. Come when you're ready. Let me show you the heart of God. In Isaiah 53, I read like these stunning words that it pleased the Lord to crush Him. How? How could God the Father be pleased in the crushing of His Son? Because in doing so, His Son paid the penalty for your sin, guaranteeing that you might become a son or a daughter of God. Have your sins forgiven and know forever that you will be in the presence of your Heavenly Father. Do this in remembrance of Him. And here is the heart of God. Scripture tells us that for the joy set before Him, Christ endured the cross, despising its shame. Do this in remembrance of Him. Let's worship together. In your uh, prayer guides, we read in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that he wants the church there's faith to rest in the power of God, not in the wisdom of men. As we go through this series together and we do this prayer guide, guys, that's what we want. Like I prayed, I know what I can do. I want to see what God can do. Like through the lives of His people as they align their heart with His heart. We saw a little bit of that last week when our outreach team went out at 11 o'clock and saw four people come to faith in Christ. 
Isn't that awesome? They're going out today in a few minutes. This past week, we've had a total of seven folks pray to receive Christ. Like that's, guys, that's what it's all about. Getting the message of the gospel to those who haven't heard it or those who haven't responded. We want to give every man, woman, and child in like Hutto and Greater Austin repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. So we want to pray as our team is going out. Uh, and I encourage you, today starts the beginning of the prayer guide, day one. So take some time to read the passage, to pray. If you're married, to pray with your spouse. And I, I'll make this promise to you. If you do it every day this week, I guarantee you that you will come on Sunday and you will probably hear one of the best sermons you've ever heard. Not because the sermon is that much greater, but because you spent seven days specifically preparing your heart to hear the Word of the Lord. And then the sermon after that, 14 days of prayer. The one after that, 21 days of prayer. The one after that, 28 days of prayer preparing your heart to hear that. Guys, I'm psyched about that for myself. And so I just pray that you would prepare your hearts like to line them up as a compass would with the heart of God. God bless you, church. Let me pray. And I'm sorry, let me pray and then we'll be dismissed. Oop, my bad. <laughs> God, uh, we do pray for the team as they go out at 11 o'clock. Uh, God, I pray that they would open your mouth, their mouths and You would fill it. God, that You would give them the words to say, that You would bring verses to mind that they haven't memorized. Lord, that they would have illustrations, that they'd have stories, that they'd have connections with these people that they talked to, that they know it was God who sovereignly sent them to them. And Lord, I pray that there would be folks today who trust You as Savior and Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.